You are listening to the podcast Water X Future presented by Aquaporin. We are Mette Mølgaard and Josefine Auderas, and we will be your hosts in this podcast series. Maybe you haven't heard about Aquaporin, but it's a water technology company based in Denmark, and it's dedicated to natural water treatment. Aquaporin works to preserve one of our most valued resources, water, by combining advanced engineering, biotechnology, and aquaporin proteins. In this podcast, we talk about water and all the opportunities and dilemmas it contains, technologies rooted in nature, the purpose of innovation, and the spectrum between science and humans. In the last episode, we talked about industrial wastewater leading to water scarcity. This time, we will unfold the practice of biomimicry that learns from and mimics the strategies found in nature to solve human design challenges. We will speak with physician scientist Peter Agra, who discovered the aquaporin protein and won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2003, and Peter Holmer Jensen, who is CEO at the company Aquaporin. Welcome. How would nature solve it? That's what biomimicry is all about, and that is what we will dive into in this episode. Not only has nature developed solutions to so many of the problems humanity faces today, it has done it in a gentle way and without damaging its surroundings. Biomimicry is a discipline that tries to learn from, take advice from, and mimic nature. In this episode, we explore biomimicry, a discipline in which nature is used as a guide a source of inspiration to solve problems and develop new solutions. We can take design advice from nature. How has nature been doing it for billions of years? For instance, how does nature repel bacteria? It turns out that the Galapagos shark has no bacteria on its surface. It's a slow-moving shark, so how does it keep its body free of a bacterial buildup? It has to do with the pattern of its skin denticles. It keeps bacteria from being able to land and grow. They are putting this design on the surfaces in hospitals to keep bacteria from landing and spreading, preventing more deaths in hospitals. Many years ago, in the late 1980s, Peter Agra made a discovery that would change the way we think about the movement of water into and out of cells. At that time, he was a newly appointed physician scientist at the Hematology Division at the Johns Hopkins University Medical Center in Baltimore. His research focused on trying to find the protein that caused RH disease, which is a disorder that has the terrifying potential to damage a developing fetus. It was while researching this protein he made a discovery that would later win him the Nobel Prize in Chemistry in 2003 and open up possibilities of a new ways of purifying water in an industrial context. And this is what we will talk to Peter Agra about in this episode, who is a professor at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so happy that you took your time to participate in this fourth episode of the podcast Water X Future presented by Aquaporin. In 2003, you won a Nobel Prize in Chemistry for 
discovering the aquaporins, but how did you actually discover this? Well, it was not a simple discovery, but it clearly was a discovery because we were searching for the basis of the red blood cell rhesus antigen, RH positive red cells, RH negative red cells. These are very important because RH negative women during pregnancy can become sensitized. And the nature of the antigen itself was unknown, so that was our task. And we purified the protein, and a contaminating protein came along. It took us a while to recognize it. So what we first were faced with was a contaminant, which is troubling our preparations for RH. But the, I guess the artistic side of this is we didn't just abandon the contaminant, we looked at it a little bit and found it to actually be very interesting. It didn't stain with typical protein stains, meaning no one had seen it before, 28 kilodalton protein in red cell membranes. And we developed a technique to purify the contaminant. It turned out it was extremely abundant. It'd be about like driving somewhere out in Jutland and coming across a city of 250,000 people and it's not on the map. It gets your attention. But it took us quite a while to figure out what it did because the protein didn't have any signals to tell us what it did, but it was related to some proteins from very strange places, like the lens of eye, brains of insects, tissues in plants, and microorganisms. So what do they have in common? It wasn't obvious to me. And we would, every year on our family vacation, go to a, on a camping trip, to one of the national parks. And we took them to Yosemite, it was wonderful. Yellowstone National Park, wonderful. Smoky Mountains, wonderful. And after doing this a few years, we had four little children. My wife asked them where they would like to go next year and which park, and they said Disney World. <laughs> it's not a national park, but it's in Florida where the Everglades are. So we went to the Everglades, we went to Disney World. And on the way back to Baltimore, it's a very long drive, about 1,500 kilometers. We broke it into two, two journeys. We spent the night in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And at that, that overnight visit, I, I stopped to see some of my friends that were at the Uni University of North Carolina and at Duke University. And at my conversation with one, my hematology professor, John Parker, when I told him about this new protein, it seemed to be present in red cells, renal tubules, and related to proteins and tissues of plants. John was an expert membrane physiologist, in addition to being an expert hematologist. And it was he that put it together. He said, Peter, have you considered this might be the long-sought water channel physiologists have been searching for for a century? And me, I, I had never heard of the water channel hypothesis, okay. so I was totally ignorant. But it teamed up with Bill Gugino here at Johns Hopkins in the physiology department, and a wonderful postdoctoral fellow, Gregory Preston, from the University of Connecticut, and collaborated on a study to test the function of this new protein by injecting the RNA into red cell, excuse me, the RNA into frog eggs, Xenopus lavus oocytes, and incubated, and the oocytes didn't look any different. These are tiny cells about millimeter in diameter. When we transferred the test oocytes to distilled water, they exploded like popcorn, whereas the control oocytes didn't. 
So that, in the end, is the story of how the aquifer in one was discovered. Probably more than you wanted to hear. No, it is such a fascinating story. And I'm wondering, like, when did you realize how groundbreaking this discovery was? I mean, you won a Nobel Prize for it. And when did you realize that, okay, this is something I need to pursue? Because it was a bit of a coincidence that you discovered this. Well, it it took a while because I I knew that there were other people looking for the water channel protein after I had my conversation with, with John. But when we first dis- demonstrated the oocytes would expel, explode, we also did other experiments using the purified protein. I had a wonderful technical assistant named Barbara Smith who could purify this protein to very clean, single polypeptide. And when that was reconstituted into membranes, so we made artificial cells, they would swell and they would shrink. So we did some confirmatory experiments And I was invited to give lots of lectures around the country and at meetings. And there's one lecture in Ohio at a small medical campus, Wright State University. My host was a man named Peter K. Lauf, a German-born investigator. Very gracious, and he asked me to give a seminar. I gave a seminar, and afterwards he came up to me and said, Peter, I think this is a Nobel Prize. <laughs> and of course, I felt delighted to hear that, but... Your papa response is, no, no, probably not. But we're delighted that people are interested. And then over the course of the next year or two, again and again after the lectures, people would say, wow, this sounds like a Nobel Prize. I still am not convinced it was the protein worthy of a Nobel Prize, but I wasn't on the committee. They, they had their deliberations and they made a decision. I'm delighted with it nonetheless. Yeah, I can imagine. Did you continue to research aquaporins after the discovery, or did you go back to your original research? Well, after we discovered the aquaporins, nobody in the lab wanted to work on RH. <laughs> I couldn't force them to do it. And so we pursued the aquaporin story, looking for other homologs. There's a, aquaporin 1 is the one we discovered in red cells. Aquaporin 2 is closely related. It's in the renal collecting duct responsive to vasopressin. And that cDNA was identified by a group in Japan, and its its function in, re, in renal collecting ducts was demonstrated by a group at NIH in collaboration with Soren Nielsen from the University of Aarhus, who became my collaborator and a close personal friend. So we worked on the aquaporins and different tissues and different organisms. And eventually we started studying parasitic aquaporins, and I'd long been interested in malaria. Long before I ever discovered the aquaporins, I started working on red cells in part because I hoped someday to work on malaria. And so we've gradually moved all of our focus onto the malaria problem, and I became the director of a malaria institute. So we're no longer working on aquaporins, but the good thing is there are younger and better scientists who are working on these problems. And so science moves ahead. I'm glad we had some role to play, but didn't feel religiously bound to working on aquaporins forever after. Yeah, we are curious to see what's going to come out of this. Now we we do this podcast for Aquaporin, the Danish-based company. Yeah, in this episode, we try to understand what biomimicry is. Could you, by the time of your discovery, imagine that the aquaporin proteins could be a source of inspiration for developing new technology? Well, I think every investigator has some hope that the discovery they make will be important. 
And we thought this is going to be very important in, re- he- in hematology and in renal concentration. And then we discovered three human beings. We, we discovered them to be genetically lacking aquaporin one protein, and they looked and felt perfectly normal. <laughs> but that's of course normal in a normal setting, with air conditioning, free access to fluids. We were rarely faced with a situation where we may face dehydration, serious dehydration. So in a a laboratory simulation of that, we had people thirsted overnight. Their renal concentrations would concentrate the urine from isotonic concentration of about 280 milliosmolar up to about 1,000 milliosmolar. The aquaporin-1 null individuals couldn't concentrate their urine a little bit, enough to get through the night. So it actually plays a very important role. But that doesn't mean it causes diseases itself. And one of the excitements was that maybe this will explain a lot of clinical diseases and provide a mechanism to prevent or treat those diseases. And in that setting, the aquaporins have yet not revealed their secrets. The use of the aquaporins to purify water was something we thought of early, and I'm sure many other groups thought of it. But I'm not an engineer. I'm I'm not even a very good scientist or a medical doctor. You can only do some things. And I spoke to a number of people, including your colleague Klaus Helix Nielsen, and they made a very serious attempt to use this information to purify water. And I guess that's why we're here today. It's an important, important goal. The, the world is a finite amount of water. It's becoming increasingly polluted. The, the access to fresh, pure water is declining. And we have global climate change. All of this is very serious. So if something useful could come from this information, my mother, who's now 96 years old, still giving me advice. When I won the Nobel, her, her, her message to my wife was, tell Peter, that's very nice, but don't let it go to his head. He still needs to do something useful. I think this is probably an example that might be very useful. I'm very eager to hear more about it. Yeah, and much of it is thanks to you and your discovery. So, yeah, thank you for all your hard work. And uh, Peter, once again, thank you so much for taking your time. We are so happy that we could call you today and hear your story. Well, thanks, Matt. I appreciate your interest. And I wish you and your colleagues the very best. The discovery of Peter Agra inspired Morten Østergaard Jensen, who is the director at Desres Sub Denmark, and Peter Holme Jensen, who is CEO at Aquaporin, to establish the Danish-based company Aquaporin in 2005. Aquaporin mimics nature's way of treating water by embedding aquaporin proteins to develop more sustainable and efficient water treatment solutions. One gram of aquaporin proteins can filter up to 700 liters of water per second. We will talk more about this with Peter Holme Jensen, the CEO at Aquaporin. Mm-hmm. 
just two years after Peter Acre won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, you co-founded the company Aquaporin. In what way did his discovery inspire you? And can you tell us about the process of starting up Aquaporin? Yes, of course, the, the, you could say the, the foundation of Aquaporin is also it, it's inspired by Peter Acre and, and the timing was also inspired by the Nobel Prize. But we actually started the basic science work in the field of aquaporin uh, proteins uh, several years before Pedego he got the Nobel Prize. In 2002, the other co-founder, Morten Jensen, he uh, published the first computer simulation of how water is transported uh, through aquaporin proteins in, uh, in nature. Uh, he published that in Science in 2002, so the, actually the year before he got the Nobel Prize uh, and it was also part of the uh, this computer simulation was also part of the presentation of uh, the aquaporin protein when Pedego got the Nobel Prize. So in many ways you could say the uh, the background for the creation of our company aquaporin is really a nice story of how basic science can inspire more commercial ideas and applied science. Uh, and it's a very very nice story in the sense that it tells that it's important that we do basic science not for a sort of a commercial reach, but because we want to know more about nature. And then sometimes, by coincidence, like in our case, it also inspires commercial ideas. Uh, and that's, of course, very nice. When Pirego, he then got the Nobel Prize in 2003, a lot of global focus then, of course, came towards the field of aquaporin proteins. And uh, already at that time, we had started to have uh, dialogues uh, on, well, this is fantastic what nature has developed uh, in terms of uh, water filtration. Why don't we just reuse that in a more industrial context? Because what these computer simulations uh, show is that for the first time ever, we can actually simulate and visualize how nature filtrates water. And it is actually the visualization of the water filtration mechanism in nature that uh, inspired the idea. I mean, normally you say seeing is believing. And we really felt that also as scientists, that it's, uh, it's really when you see through the computer simulations how the aquaporin protein filtrates, nature and, uh, filtrates water and living cells that you uh, create the conceptual idea. In this episode of the podcast, we talk about biomimicry, and this is also the foundation of the company Aquaporin. Can you talk about the benefits of biomimicry? Biomimicry is, uh, is something where uh, if people are looking for sustainability in the long term, biomimicry holds the promise that uh, it has sort of uh, sustainability, long-term sustainability built in from day one. Because biomimicry is uh, taking the ideas from nature and also reusing what nature has developed through billions of years. And if it has uh, survived billions of years, we know by default, that there is long-term sustainability in this type of water filtration. We know that the way that uh, most water is filtrated uh, on Earth today and has for, for millions of years has been through the aquaporin protein. So in that uh, sense, you could say that sustainability has been built in from day one. Then on top of that, you can also you can look at nature and say it's actually our biggest R&D lab because uh, it has been working for something like 3.8 billion years through evolution. So there's a lot of uh, fantastic ideas that had many iterations <laughs> in, in all these billions of years. So that's why uh, 
we, we think that if we're looking for sustainability on the long term, nature is a really good place to start. And then there are many different types of uh, biomimicry where the acupoint uh, inside uh, technology is one example of biomimicry. There are other examples of biomimicry where people are trying to mimic, for instance, uh, the use of uh, spider threads, which is uh, it's actually stronger than steel uh, and much more... Uh, flexible. Uh, so if you can uh, upscale that and use that in uh, industrial uh, building materials, then you also have something quite revolutionary. We see today that there is, uh, there is actually also uh, different societies evolving around biomimicry. I think it's especially in basic science today. So I think maybe there's a handful of good examples of, uh, of biomimicry in, uh, in companies like Acropoint where some of them also have TED Talks. But um, I think the, the, the biggest area is more in basic science. So you have, for instance, the Biomimicry Institute, which is headed by Janine Beneus, a former Berkeley professor. They also have a homepage called asknature.org, where you can go in and have a look at all the different uh, inspirations from nature. Do you see a rise in the interest of mimicking nature to solve some of the human-made challenges we face? Yes, I see that. I, I see it in, uh, in, in science, in basic science. I see it in architecture. Uh, I see it in design. Uh, and even see it in art. Uh, so uh, I see it in many different uh, verticals, I would say, in, uh, in society. There is one thing, however, that you need to be aware of when we talk about biomimicry. And, and that is that you, you, you have to sort of accept that biomimicry might not be uh, the the strongest and the fastest way to do a certain operation, but it's the right way if you look for long-term sustainability. And sometimes I think that is actually the biggest challenge in terms of uh, accepting biomimicry in the industry, because sometimes we are looking for the fastest, the strongest, and not the most sustainable long-term. So we, we can't wait for sustainability, so to speak, as uh, human beings. But you know for a fact that there's long-term sustainability built into it if you, uh, if you start using biomimicry. And is it a new way of thinking or is it an old approach? Biomimicry has been around for centuries, but I think it's, uh, it's rising, as mentioned, especially in basic science. And therefore, there will also be uh, opportunities uh, for more industrial applied science in the future. So Acroporin has now been in the world for 16 years or so. Can you mention some of the most important achievements you have made? I think we have achieved quite a lot of uh, different uh, things where it's actually the first time in world history where this has uh, been achieved. First of all, I'm also very inspired by biomimicry and I, I, I'm proud of the fact that we have taken an inspiration from nature and, and try to create a more sustainable water treatment solution based on the way nature is filtrated in water. And uh, in that uh, process, there's a lot of things that we have done for the first time ever in industrial uh, world history. First of all, we, we are the first company in the world to produce a membrane protein in industrial scale. There's a lot of other companies that produces um, proteins to catalyze industrial processes and use them as enzymes. And we have companies like Novozymes in Denmark, we have DSM in the Netherlands, we have uh, DuPont Genincor, the old Danisco 
in, uh, in the U.S. They all produce proteins and uh, enzymes to catalyze industrial processes, just like we do. But they are all soluble proteins. The first membrane protein that is induced in, uh, produced in industrial scale is actually the aquaporin protein. So uh, in that sense, we have uh, created uh, uh, industrial history uh, just by producing the aquaporin protein in industrial scale. The second part is then to, uh, to incorporate that into a more uh, classical membrane engineering uh, materials. And this convergence of uh, using biological components with more uh, classical engineering techniques is uh, exactly what has been described in uh, the former president of MIT, Susan Hockfield's new book, The Age of Living Machines. Uh, and here she uh, describes how this holds the promise not only to create a more sustainable water treatment solution, but actually in the long run, it's a good example of what Susan Hockfield believes can create an entirely new industry vertical, where uh, the convergence of biology and, um, and engineering uh, can be compared to the uh, convergence of uh, physics and uh, more classical engineering, which essentially created the IT industry. Uh, and that was the last industrial revolution. And uh, Susan Hockfield believes that the next big industrial revolution will actually come from the convergence of biology and more classical engineering, where we could say melt nature and uh, industrial engineering together. And this is exactly what we do also. And we are also quite proud of that, of course, to be uh, pioneering this field uh, more generally. Just last year, we were also the first company in the world to, uh, to get uh, uh, food contact material compliance of using a membrane protein uh, from nature in uh, food processing. Uh, this is a process where you have to go through a lot of uh, uh, administrative paperwork with the FDA in the US uh, and getting this compliance is also a big milestone for us and here we are also the first company in the world to achieve food contact material compliance for uh, a material that holds a membrane protein in it. So I think these are good examples of uh, what we can be proud of from a technical uh, perspective. Now our focus is more and more on uh, commercializing the technologies that we have now. But what we also have, if you look at it on the long-term technical opportunity, uh, technological opportunities that we have, is that we have now created an entirely new platform of uh, not only commercializing our first product, but actually also making new generations of the aquaponic inside technology because we suddenly have all the different components and building blocks in much larger scale than we have had in the last 15 years. So now we start on, uh, we are on uh, an entirely different level of how we can develop the, uh, the aquaponic inside technology in, in, in future generations. I think we have all seen the picture of uh, the first uh, mouse, the, com- the first computer mouse, uh, which was made out of wood and it was really uh, just a box. Uh, and I think that just that's a good example of uh, what can happen in a, in a couple of uh, decades when you suddenly have a new technology. And I really feel that we are in, in this moment right now with the aquaponics side technology. Now let's look into the future. What is your vision for aquaporin? In other words, what do you want to achieve? I think uh, we want to achieve uh, to uh, to be part of creating a more sustainable future 
in water treatment. That is our long-term purpose. And I think we, uh, uh, we bring a new, quite innovative uh, building block component for more intelligent systems for the future. Uh, I don't think that we hold you know, uh, all the answers, but I think we are a very interesting and intelligent building block where we can create new water treatment uh, solutions. Uh, and I think there's a big need for that. There's uh, around 1.5 billion people that do not have access to clean drinking water and sanitation, which we take for granted. Around 80% of all industrial drinking water, uh, sorry, industrial wastewater, is just put into the nature and environment without adequate treatment today. And then I think we can also help to uh, actually develop much more innovative food and beverage uh, products for, for the future with our technology because we can now also use it in, in uh, food processing. So I think it, it, it opens a lot of different doors. And for the next uh, five years, AquaPoint's focus will be on uh, not only uh, developing um, sustainable water treatment uh, solution, but also becoming uh, financially sustainable in uh, the long term by uh, uh, becoming cash positive. Uh, we have been on a long technological journey, which have been supported by uh, some uh, very good uh, uh, investors uh, that has supported Aquapoint's uh, development, but we also need to uh, grow up as a company, you could say, and to um, to earn our own money. Uh, so um, we become uh, sustainable, not only from a technology point of view and from a water treatment perspective, but also uh, from a financial perspective. And when we are in that situation, then then the world is really open for a company like Aquapoint. Because we hold we hold so many opportunities in uh, in this field of uh, uh, water treatment solutions based on the, na- uh, the way nature filtrates water. So I see that as a sort of a, a first last step, and then uh, then the world will really open up for a lot of opportunities for Aquapoint. Well, it sounds like there's still a lot of work to do for a more sustainable world, and good luck in the years ahead. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the podcast. Thank you. As Peter Holme Jensen says, the company Aquaporin was inspired by Peter Agra's discovery and the Nobel Prize. But even before, they were already inspired by how water is transported by aquaporin proteins in nature. Biomimicry might not be the fastest and strongest way but it is the best way if you're looking for sustainability long-term. Nature has been developing these ideas for billions of years. This was the fourth episode of the podcast series Water X Future, presented by Aquaporin. In our next episode, we continue our exploration into biomimicry and how we can take design advice and learn from nature. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll be back soon.